Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. Well, it's great to be with you. Particularly excited about the Kingdom Come uh, night. I heard a woo. I don't know if that was my wife wooing. Um, but uh, already we're hearing of people who are like going to drive from two hours away, I think, um, to come to it. So really encourage uh, Red people to come along to that. Um, God's doing something at this time in different churches as churches praying in, in new ways, open to what God is going to do. We're seeing that, hey, programs aren't going to save us. We actually need to turn to the person of Jesus And that's what I spoke about last week. This is a vision series. And I spoke about the moment that we find ourselves in last week, Uh, an unprecedented moment where I've seen an openness in churches and church leaders to actually work together in ways that I've never seen before, to hear what God is doing and pressing into him in ways that I've not seen before. We're seeing an unprecedented openness to God Many people's expectations about life are not being met in this moment. And there's this openness to what God is doing. Uh, There's this great need in our community, um, not just because of the pandemic, but rising living costs for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I think at this moment, there's a real invitation for us to step into. That's what I spoke about last week. How do we meet this moment as the people of God and respond to this great opportunity? So this is a vision series. I had a sermon written for today. I'm actually going to give that next week. The reason being is that this Thursday, I'd finished my sermon. I was like, you know, done, all good. And I got woken up at um, sort of 5.30, just I think by God, who just, I just had this real sense to actually not do that sermon, to actually do a sermon, a teaching that I've not done, I think, for over 10 years. Uh, uh, and it's been a while. But this sermon and this teaching is actually really central to, I think, what Red is all about. In many ways, what this is today, or not in many ways, it is. This is the vision of discipleship we have here at Red. And for me, this is something which God spoke to me over a significant period, through a period of being quite sick a year after uh, we kicked off Red in this sort of current form, and having to step away from the role for some months, uh, being quite unwell. And in the midst of that time, God really spoke to me. So that's what you're going to hear today. Um, it became a, a talk, which became a, a video, which became a book. Um, but the book was called The Trouble with Paris. But I'm just going to give you the original teaching as I sort of gave it at that time. And uh, it just seems like a word that's come back into season. And I think it's important for us to touch base. Often vision is about where we're going, but also vision's often returning to the vision that God's often given you as well to guide you as a North Star as, as to see where you're going at this moment in time. Now, there's a saying which says, if you want to ask for a definition of water, don't ask a fish. For a fish, water is everywhere. It's the substance in which they swim. Often we don't know our own culture, we don't know our own ways, our ways of thinking, our means until we go to a different culture and realize, hang on, they do things differently there. And what I want to talk about today and begin with is give language to a vision of the world, a vision of life that is all around us, that is so assumed that we don't even name it. The most powerful myths are often the ones that are not named. Now, 
often as a follower of God, you can feel this sense that I'm different to the bigger culture. I follow God. I have a religion or a faith or a spirituality that's here. And then everyone else around us has some sort of unformed thing. They're not the believers. I'm the believer. They're not the believers. Actually, I want to go as far to say that what I'm about to describe to you, I think is one of the great unspoken religions that's actually out there. It's so assumed that it's not named. It's interesting, the religion of Hinduism didn't really have a name. People in India just assumed it until people from outside came in and said, hang on, you guys do things differently. And I think this, what I'm about to outline today is almost like that. It's almost like the Hinduism which hasn't been named of our culture. So this talk has three circles. And the first circle I'm about to show you is actually a circle which explains or has a name for this thing that's all around us, influencing us, shaping how we view the world. To capture it, to give you a, a sort of essence of how it operates, it's a little bit like a filter on a Snapchat or Instagram photo. It's something which is painted over life and makes it look better than it really is. You see those classic photos of before the filter and after the filter and someone who's there and they're made to look so much more attractive or perhaps it's CGI or an image that exists in the real world but is made to look even better than the real thing. And so the term I want to introduce to use to describe, this actually term comes from sort of social studies, philosophy, um, sociology. Uh, it's invented by a guy called Jean Borroulard but used by other people like Umberto Eco. I promise I won't go too deep into the social theory today, but the term he came up with was a term called hyper-real or hyper-reality. And what this was, was a way of trying to show you things from the real world, but a possibly even better version of them. This is the butter that tastes like butter, but doesn't put any weight on when you eat it. This is the advertisement for a city or a holiday destination that looks incredible when you're looking at it online and booking your holiday and seeing advertisements from there and seeing people's photos that they've put up on social media from that place. And then you get to the place and it doesn't look as fantastic as what was originally promised. Now, this is not just about advertising. This is actually a way of thinking that is overlaid everything that we do. This is influencing how we view our jobs. It's this perfect view of what a job could be, a job where you're going to go and you're going to have this tremendous sense of meaning, connect with this fantastic group of people. We put this over where we live, our houses, our areas, our neighborhoods, what cities we live in, this sort of veneer that's put over cities. It's how we view relationships, whether it's platonic or romantic, this sense that somewhere there's this perfect person, this fantastic group of friends who just get you and can speak into some sort of hole of meaning that we have inside of us. This is about the view of the world, which sees that experiences are what life's all about, pleasure. And so it's constantly being spoken at you. It's spoken at you in the language of advertising. It's spoken that over you through schools and universities, which promise you can be unstoppable. It's spoken over you by all of the fabric of, of popular culture. It's this constant promise, this unspoken religion or spirituality, which is constantly saying you can have a life that's even better than the real thing. Here's a quote from Krishan Kumar. 
And he says this, explaining behind this. He says, our world has become so saturated with images and symbols that a new electronic reality has been created, whose effect is to obliterate any sense of an objective reality lying behind the images and symbols. So saying this world of images and symbols changes reality. I was doing some ministry in New York, and I had to be somewhere. It was like a midweek morning at about 11 a.m., and so I'm trying to find my way to this meeting, and I'm walking along what's really quite an unremarkable street, not an amazing day. It's the middle of the morning. New Yorkers are going about their day like people do everywhere. But I noticed on different corners as I walked along this street, tourists. And they were standing on these corners and they were all doing the same thing. They were all standing, sort of blocking traffic while New Yorkers got annoyed by these people blocking the, blocking the pedestrian traffic. And they had their phones out and they were pointing the phones at buildings and skyscrapers and trying to get the perfect shot of the New York experience. Put it up on social media. Their friends back home look at it, go, wow, so-and-so is having this incredible, incredible time. There was the real thing that was happening in the street, but what these people were trying to capture was this hyper-real New York reality of what they were experiencing. That's the difference between that image which is disconnected from an objective reality. He goes on. In this, I think that's actually meant to write, simulated world. In this simulated world, images become objects rather than reflecting them. You probably heard the term the objectification of women, where it may talk about the fact that you may take a woman who's a living, breathing person with a whole life and complexity about who she is and different things and you know, a complete human being, but then you may take a particular photo of her which tries to turn her into a kind of sex object. It's not about the subjective person, it's about the person as an object. That's what we call objectification. Now, you've probably heard of that in terms of the objectification of women, but what Krishan Kumar is saying here, that now happens to everything. Everything is taken as an object disconnected from the complexities of what that thing is or that person or that experience. So it says, images become objects. Rather than reflecting them, reality becomes hyper-reality. In hyper-reality, it's no longer possible to distinguish the imaginary from the real, the true from the false. Hyper-reality is a kingdom of the imaginary. It's a spirituality of the idealistic that you're always trying to move towards. So that's at play, unnamed, but everywhere. You will see this thousands of times a day as you see images, billboards, you log on to online, you look at social media, a constant projection of the world is this idealized form that's often disconnected from what you actually experience. So therefore, if this is a sort of unspoken religion, how do you be a disciple of this religion? Well, what you need to do then is you need to align all your expectations and, and try and get as much of your life into this incredible reality that seems to be tantalizingly just before you. Our aspirations are to become like all the promises of this world. So therefore, your relationships should reflect what this looks like, how people have relationships in shows on TV. Somewhere hovering, there's this soulmate this perfect romantic person, which may 
fill a space with him. Again, this overrides how we think about life. This overrides how we think about jobs, experiences, how we view and make decisions. It's this constant thing we're always dealing with and measuring where we are now with this idealized reality. And because we live no longer in a time of mass marketing, where perhaps you have a handful of ads that are trying to capture the attention of millions of Australians, we live in an incredibly sophisticated time where actually algorithms have designed this perfectly for each of you. In fact, if you're probably you're under about 25, somewhere on a Google mainframe in California, there is a complete digital file of your life. Everything you've ever clicked on, all of the words you've ever used in an email, all of the things you bought online, this perfect representation of your desires. And it sends to you then through advertising, through what it puts before you, this perfect version for you. If you're into cars, particular kinds of cars, it's going to show you just not those cars, but this whole world around what would it look like if you had that car or if even you're interested in this issue. You're not just going to get that issue. You're going to get it wrapped in a particular kind of wrapping that makes it seem incredible. Now, to boil this all down, hyperreality is the sociological world. But really, this can be boiled down with the phrase, hyperreality is the I will be happy when. I'll be happy when I move out of here and move to that part of town. I'll be happy when, when I move to that city. I'll be happy when, when I get that kind of friends. I'll be happy when my body looks like this. I'll be happy when I can afford that. I'll be happy when I have that experience. I'll be happy when I get out of here. I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when. It's this tantalizing thing that you don't have but if you just got it, then you'd experience some kind of mini salvation. Now, we all have this. All of us have an I will be happy when. And these are really tricky customers, these I will be happy whens. Because often what happens, it's like a, it's like a virus which keeps mutating. I will be happy when I move to that city. You move to that city, and it's not that amazing. I will remember, again, another New York story. Uh, speaking in a church in New York, and I actually did very similar to this talk. This is years ago. And in the front row, there was a young woman, and she basically wanted to talk to me afterwards. Spoke to her. Aussie, doing this job, which many people thought would be a dream job. She's living in New York. And she basically, this is everything she wanted. She wanted to have this dream career, live in New York. She's this Aussie. She said, all my friends just think my life's absolutely amazing. You're in New York, you're in Manhattan, doing this incredible job, making a difference in the world. And she said, it just doesn't align with my reality, living here, doing this. She actually wasn't happy. So there's this incredible thing where as soon as you get the I will be happy when you want now, it will be undermined by another I will be happy when. As soon as you get it, it's like it loses its power and then you want another one. So the I will be happy when constantly changes and is irrepressible. So some traits of hyperreality. 
I've named some of them. First of all, experiential. This vision is all about having fantastic experiences. It's vision of the good life and any, any religion or spirituality ultimately is a vision of the good life. This unnamed spirituality or religion's vision of the good life is that you should be having amazing experiences all the time. So that incredible party, went to that incredible place, had the most incredible weekend away. I went for a walk in the hills by myself and it was incredible. I just holidayed in Dubrovnik and it was amazing. Have you met my friend? She is amazing. I have incredible experiences with her. Not like the experiences you have with her because we just have this deep, deep bond. Here's a photo of us. Constant experiences. Everything gets reduced to a kind of experience. You go to stores now. They're not just selling you something. Stores are telling you this entire experience. Come to downtown Melbourne. Reconnect with that experience. Don't just go to the football. Have an entire experience. Life is good experiences. Don't just have a kid. Have an incredible experience of parenting. Now, these experiences are sold to us. They're sold to us in a particular way. They're sold to us through this means of consumerism. I studied advertising. I don't think there's anything wrong with advertising when you're selling people what the actual product is. Here is this shovel. It's the best darn shovel you can buy. It's got reinforced handle. It just cuts through dirt. You will dig a trench. Just to be fantastic. It's much better than those other shovels. They're rubbish. This shovel is fantastic. You should buy it. That's Honest advertising, if it genuinely aligns with all of those things. But if you've got a shovel and there's an advertisement about a man who feels completely inadequate as a male and his wife doesn't respect him and his neighbour's so much cooler than him, but then he gets this shovel off the shelf and he starts digging and his wife starts looking at him in this new way. Wow, he is masculine. Look how much he's digging and his neighbor's looking over the fence and maybe his neighbor's wife's looking over the fence as well. And then he holds it up like Thor at the end and like lightning hits him. These are the ads I would have made if I continue in advertising. This is why, this is why God saved me and put me into ministry. Didn't save me, saved the public. But it's a consumerist item. So it's selling you things idealistically beyond what those items are. And you see this, if you keep an eye out for this, it's ridiculous, it's everywhere. So it's basically, you will be happy when you have this item or service. And again, too, there is a profile most people in this room have been marketed to since you were born. Happy meals. Now also, it's not just enough to have good experiences, to consume those experiences. You need to do that so other people can see because this is lived in public. So there's a performative element. The people who were standing there on that morning in New York weren't happy just to go, oh, this is the Empire State Building. That's incredible. Look at the sun. This is great. Loving this. Glad I consumed that package from Flight Center. No, they're doing this. Why are they taking a photo? Because they are showing other people that they're having that experience. There's a performative element to this. In this worldview, everyone's getting along in the ads, but really it's deeply competitive. And you need to compete with others and show where you are. Like, you know, I'm so glad you had a holiday in one thaggy. But I just have to tell you, my New York experience was incredible. It's competitive. 
And so you're competing with other people and you're performing in front of others. And everything's becoming performance. It's continual performance. Even when you're struggling now, that becomes a performance. You're performing and talking online about, I'm having this terrible moment. Can you all see? And so life is becoming completely performative because it's lived in the world of the image and the screen. Now, again, too, all of this is idealistic. It's this perfect version of New York, perfect version of you, perfect version of what you could look like in that, in that jumper, perfect view, version of what the shovel can do for you. It's all idealistic, this constant idealistic thing, which is always hovering before you and it's really attractive, but also it's saying where you are now is not adequate. Who you are now is not adequate. Satisfied, happy people don't go out and buy stuff as much as people who are unsatisfied, unsure of who they are and struggle with their identity. So it's constantly undermining you. This world is constantly undermining you. You finally saved up for that car, you could have bought the luxury model. You finally are friends with that person. What if there was other friends out there? You finally bought that house or rented that place, but there's now this really new cool place to live. And all of this, though, is ultimately individualistic. The message of this is this is not a communal thing. Yes, other people are part of it, but ultimately what it is is you're the hero of this story. You're the, the chief actor in the drama. You're the star of the production. All this focuses in on you. The problem with all of this, we all know what this feels like. We all fall for it in ways. But we all see through it increasingly. Now, we might not see through all of it, but there's a gnawing sense. And part of what happens with this unspoken religion is that people begin to doubt it. Often when you doubt it, it just says, here's some more. Unhappy about this fills it with more stuff, more hyper-real idealistic visions that if you just got that, then you'll be really happy. But there's this great rub because you can't live in hyper-reality. You can take the photo of the New York skyline, you can go on the holiday, you can hang out with that person, you can go for that hike, you can buy that item. But at some point, you start to realize that you don't live in hyper-reality. Where do you actually live? You live in reality. Yep, you may have that two-week holiday. Yes, you may have that great chat. Yes, you may have that incredible night. Yes, you may go to that concert. Yes, you may buy something. And it's wonderful for a little moment. But then you're plunged back to where you really live, which where is we all live, which humans have always lived, which is reality. We don't live in the hyper-real world. We do ordinary things. We sit on buses. We sit at home board. We eat food. We go to the toilet. We visit relatives that you may not enjoy visiting. You have to go and buy shovels and dig trenches. <laughs> Maybe not all of us. But all of us live in reality. But we get just enough tastes and touches of little moments of hyper-reality that we think that what if our whole life could be like that? The friendship is great sometimes. Romantic relationship has romantic periods. Jobs do give you meaning at moments. Sometimes it is good to get and buy something. Nice, a new jumper. But we live all of our lives in reality. What are the traits of reality? First of all, they're mundane. 
That's the stuff I'll just talk about. You will not see mundane stuff rarely ever on TV. And if you see it, it's being made fun of. But if you look at the stats, and I don't have them, but if you look at the stats of how much you sleep, how much you go to the toilet, how much, you, how much in your life have you buttered toast? Oh, that really hit home. Wow, it's like some big toast butterers here. Cleaning, dusting, ironing. Scripture tells us that one of the results of the fall is that we toil. Work is not always going to be transcendently amazing. Work is often hard. That's why I didn't put work there. I put toil. Humans toil. Sometimes relationships are hard work. Sometimes it's difficult. We get bored. They don't actually speak to our sense of meaning. Secondly, in reality, there's consequences. You make a mistake, it actually costs. We have responsibility. The great myth of this unspoken religion of hyper-reality is that you don't need to have responsibility. And actually in the West, we don't like responsibility. There is this huge problem at the moment that's happened particularly in, in this the last little while where increasingly it's hard to get people to take roles of responsibility at work. We just don't want it. We don't want to be constricted. Increasingly, people are less likely to take a raise. They would just rather not have the hassle. I don't want to be responsible. People become parents and then actually shocked that being a parent means you're responsible and you're going to have less personal freedom. We see responsibility as bad because we have less personal freedom. One of the key traits of reality is that we live in a world of incredible injustice. As was mentioned in what's happening, we live in a world where in, in, in Europe at the moment, there's just horrendous stories. I was reading about children being taken away from their parents and, and sent to far reaches of Russia. Absolute heartbreaking. This keeps happening again and again in our world. And Ukraine's just one. There's Ethiopia. There's wars that barely even come on our radar because the world is unjust. And that happens at a macro level. That happens at an individual level. Just out of the blue. I got robbed uh, when I was younger at Knife Point. And it was just this out of the blue weird thing where someone tried to use violence to take my money. And the sense of anger and frustration and hope, not hopelessness, like powerlessness you have when you're a victim of a crime like that's just the weirdest thing. Just happily going along my business, guy put a knife in my side, give us your money. It's just such a weird thing. And this anger, I remember this real weird sense of anger, like how can you do this? The sense of injustice, but that could be a relational breakdown, that could be so many different things. It's because in the world there's suffering. We don't really have a solution for suffering. We're becoming more aware of suffering. But our culture's solutions, more campaigns on the news, some of this helps, more funding. But injustice and suffering cannot be removed from the world by just some good government planning or a few companies giving an extra 10% there. That stuff may help. But reality is filled with injustice and suffering at big, macro and small levels. Suffering is part of being human. And being part of human is that there is a sense where our lives when you do look at them, seem insignificant. As I said, part of the mythology of hyper-reality is that your life is your star of the show. It's all about you. The universe arranges itself to actually suit you. I've seen that written on. I saw, I saw, saw a, a, a fridge magnet which said, the universe is rearranging itself to make my dreams come true. 
But the reality is we as humans, we are part of billions of people on this planet. Our lives, when we actually look at them, often can seem quite insignificant. And as humans, we're mortal. There's a stage when we die. We only get a few decades in this world. And death is one of the things that our culture cannot stand. People talk about, oh, is our culture sexually repressed? People don't talk about sex. Our culture constantly talks about sex. Our culture worships sex. It's honestly one of its great sacraments that you cannot question. But it absolutely cannot handle death, that people die. We don't know how to handle it. We can't talk about it. But all of us are going to die. This is reality. This is what we're not taught. This is what is hidden. But it's where you live, and it's where we live. Now, 10 years ago, when I used to tell this talk and share this talk, I often felt I was pushing a giant rock up a hill. Because at that moment, the world seemed to be just on this trajectory. We were going to head towards this wonderful, progressive future. People like Obama coming in, yes, we can. The world was going to get better. Wars seemed to be fading. Everything was going to improve. The economy just kept going. Australia missed the global financial crisis. People were being promised, you can be anything. You are filled. You're talented. You're special. If your teacher's telling you you're special or telling the class that they're all special, maybe not everyone's special. Given this promise, given this promise, given this promise. And I remember just, it just was so inbred into people's DNA that to actually question this and talk about reality, there was this, almost this huge kickback. People didn't want to hear it. People, I remember afterwards, people say, no, my actual, my life's going to be awesome. I was like, okay, let's make a date for 20 years time. We'll have coffee. But you know what, where we are now, and this is part of the reason I want to give this talk again, is I don't have to convince people anymore. We've seen the world, we've seen the ongoing, the ongoing just continuation of injustice and suffering. We've seen the fact that something happens like a pandemic. And you have to convince everyone that maybe things are more fragile than we realized and that everything may not just continually slide. You come out of a pandemic, it's not just a blip. You come into a world of rising costs, inflation. You look at environment, you look at war. And all of a sudden, reality is becoming much clearer and people don't know what to do with this. So much of what is happening at the moment is we have people in the world, particularly, I just want to say, I think perhaps if you're under 40 or maybe under 50, all you've been told is that everything's going to get better and wonderful. And then an event like this happens and other events and people don't know how to handle it. We've been actually set up to fail by our culture, given a false religion of hyper-reality, that everything can be fantastic. It's all at the tips of your finger, fingers. Now, part of the problem that's also happening at the moment is that one of the things that the church did when confronted by hyper-reality, seeing people living in hyper-reality, is that the church then thought, if we're going to escape from this onslaught of this false religion, what we need to do is sort of say to people how they can have some of the elements of what the culture is offering, but with the Christian veneer. So what we then have is that following Jesus but following Jesus to some kind of Christian hyper-reality where we sort of have people who seem to be leading and their lives look like some incredible moment where they're doing incredible things and they're all super fit and wonderful and everyone's got fantastic teeth and it's all fantastic. 
And you can have that too if you follow Jesus. Maybe not all of the stuff, but most of it. And so follow Jesus and you're going to get all the stuff that's, that's of the hyper real world, just a Christian veneer. And it's this incredible moment and just your life is going to be one gigantic, ongoing, incredible Christian experience. But people are seeing the shortcomings of this. First of all, seeing people who promoted that, but then fall. When you follow this and you're pressing in, but then you experience suffering, unanswered prayer, doubts. Your expectations are not met. And often what happens at this moment is people start doubting their faith. They don't doubt the unspoken religion, the continual lie that we've been taught with all the energy and force of our culture that most humans throughout history would look at and go, that's ridiculous. You're not going to have this incredible life. What are you talking about? And people begin to get a sense of disappointment, hurt, of why this hasn't arrived. And the classic thing that you see through the saints of history, that yearning for things not of this world. But that yearning for us, because we've been set up in this way, actually just feels like, wow, the whole thing's falling over. The good news, the good news is this is not a Christian vision. The good news is there is a Christian vision. There is a biblical vision. In the Scriptures... You have this incredible moment where Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, after for 30 years living in reality, living with his family in a very small, unglamorous town, living in the midst of all the things that humans live through, God come to earth, giving up all of heaven to come to earth. Jesus lives this incredible, very ordinary human life. He then goes and is baptized in the river by John the Baptist. He goes into the wilderness where he's tempted with power and the glamorous and almost this satanic version of what he could be, the hyper-real Messiah. And he says, no. And he returns and comes to the synagogue and it's the time for the Torah scroll to be opened and the scriptures to be read. And Jesus comes forward to read from the scriptures, something that would happen all the time. Synagogues are... You read the scriptures, it's very normal. But something unnormal happens that, that day. It says this, He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. This is from Isaiah. Luke recounting the story in his gospel. Jesus reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is announcing something. Jesus is announcing a reality that was spoken of by the prophet, spoken of scripture, that a time is coming. There is a different reality in the world and it's breaking in. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and you can tell this is a moment 
This is a moment where no one's speaking, but the atmosphere is thick. It says, the eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When Jesus comes, this different reality that everyone in Israel was yearning for, the remnant of people who are still pressing into God were yearning for, this reality was breaking in. God's reality was breaking into reality. And Jesus was saying, here I am. This is, this is being fulfilled. I am the herald of this kingdom. If you want to see this kingdom, look at me. And what Jesus does in his ministry, we see him speaking of what this kingdom means. This kingdom, you have to have different glasses to put on to see. If you're looking through this worldly view of, of, of eyes, you're not going to see it. If you have spiritual vision, you're going to see this kingdom. Donald Craybill called it the upside-down kingdom. In this kingdom, a woman giving only her last small coin is actually hugely powerful. In this kingdom, children who accept God just with their hearts, who in that time, in that culture, were super vulnerable and had no power. Actually, they're like the saints. The lepers who were infected and sick were healed. In this kingdom, all the things of heaven, the place where God's will happens in fullness, are now crashing into the world. The kingdom is breaking out. And Jesus is like, it's starting. This is starting. And this is happening in our time. Jesus goes to the cross, defeats death and defeats sin. And heaven and earth begin to be reunited. And we're living in that moment. Now, it's really important to understand the overlap. George Alden Ladd wrote a famous book on the kingdom, and he talked about the kingdom being here but not here yet. And what this means is you'll have moments where perhaps in the midst of worship you're singing, and it's almost like you can hear the voice of angels, and you'll feel the Holy Spirit. And it's this moment where God is so alive to you. Maybe it's an answered prayer. Maybe it's someone has a word of encouragement. Maybe you see a moment where actually the poor are being fed and you're there and you're like, God is here. Kingdom's here. But then there'll be other times where you'll actually be praying for something and the prayer's not answered. You may see the church acting in ways which doesn't reflect the kingdom. Maybe you feel that sense of mundaneness, tallness. Maybe there's seasons where actually you just don't feel God in the way that you have at other times. Maybe there's a sense where you're just trying to break into Christian community. Kingdom's here, but it's not here in its fullness yet. We live in the in-between. But what we're living in is the moment where it is breaking out. And what the church is called to be, because the kingdom is what the church is called to reflect, what the church is called to be is this foretaste, this sense of the kingdom. Are we always going to get it right? No. Are you and I going to stuff it up at times? Yes. But we are called to live out this kingdom and it's breaking out in the world for those who have eyes to see. Therefore, discipleship, following Jesus, the vision of what discipleship is at Red is choosing to head in a different direction to all the hyper-real promises of our world, to recognize them as things which fall short, recognize them as actual, not just myths, but idols, 
that we need to put down all of the idealistic things that our culture has promised us, which God did not invite us into. That we actually need to realize the reality of life, that we live in reality. God's reality is breaking out and our lives is lived in that overlap where heaven is breaking into earth. But that means there'll be yearning. That means there'll be things which you're not going to feel and, and fulfillment won't come until heaven breaks out into earth. But we keep pressing in. This is why Paul says, be in the world, but not of the world. Your citizenship, Paul says, is not of this earth. Whatever passport you've got, if you've got an Australian passport or another passport, whatever your passport says, that's only a small partial element. Your real passport is a passport of heaven when you follow Jesus. That's your real citizenship. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our lives with him. So I believe there's this opportunity as we emerge into a world where increasingly the promises of hyper-reality are falling over. They're going to up it. We're going to have the metaverse, glasses where you'd be able to text your mates with your brain waves. It's all going to happen. And more crazy stuff. But the whole time, we need to be called as the people of God to remember that our citizenship is elsewhere, that God's reality is breaking in. And this means... That you are called, if you're fought, to follow Jesus, to live in a very countercultural way. It's not just about saying no to bad stuff. It's about saying yes to Jesus' different way of living, putting down some of this idealism, that sense that one day there's going to be this perfect job, which is going to give you all the sense of meaning and everything. You might get a great job, but it's not going to fill that hole. It's putting down this sense that somewhere there's this perfect person, this perfect group of friends, this perfect house, this perfect area, this perfect holiday, this perfect set of experiences, this perfect you. Even, dare I say, a perfect church. And boil it down to following Jesus means putting down these me-driven idols of our culture. If you look at our signs for red, we came up with a really short tagline years ago, shaped by this message, shaped by what we felt God was calling us to do. Red started and Red was really passionate about doing different things like mission and ministry and justice and different things like this. And I realized that all of it will be totally subverted by the meism and hyper-real idealism of our age, unless we realize something of what it is to follow Jesus. So that's why we have a three-word tagline underneath our signs, which just simply says, more than me. Following Jesus is realizing that it's more than just about you. It's more than just the hyper-real dreams of our age. Jesus has proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. And at this moment, as we come back from the pandemic and rebuild and people are reconnecting faith and people have thought a lot about their lives and the myths are falling down. Life seems just a bit more difficult now. This is the perfect moment to say yes again to Jesus. And so I'd like to end this service in a bit of a different way. I was in Brisbane two weeks ago, preaching in a really historic old Methodist church. And as I was ending 
the service, I noticed something at the front. I get the band to come up actually as I share this story. I know something at the front, that around the edges of the front of this historic Methodist old church was a little rail, and the rail had a little cushion on it, and it went all around the front of the church. And I recognized it because I used to be a salvo. I was in the Salvation Army. Salvation Army came out of Methodism, and it took with Methodism what's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is a space down the front where you come and spend time with God. If you've been to Red before we stopped for the pandemic, every week we'd have prayer on the sites. The mercy seat isn't necessarily a place where you come to be prayed for. It's actually a space where you come to spend time with God. So let's stand. Because I believe there's a moment. There's a moment of invitation before us. There's a moment to actually put down some of those idols, that idealism, the ideology of hyper-reality, and actually say, yes, Jesus, I want this to be about more than me. I want this to be about you. So what we're going to do is we worship. There's an invitation that's going to be open. If you want to come and kneel at the front, if you're able, there's something, I think, really powerful about doing that, just coming by yourself, spending time with God, saying yes to him. Are these moments somehow special religious things? No. But they do have a sense of meaning. And when we do them publicly, there's something, it's a, it's a public thing to say, yes, I want to do this. And God uses those yes moments. If you can't come down to the front, that's fine. Whatever you're physically able to do, comfortable, you might want to sit on it, you want to stay where you are, whatever is comfortable for you. But I think there's an invitation for some hearts at this moment. To, perhaps it's the first time of saying yes like this. Maybe it's a saying yes because you've you haven't said yes like for years and you need to say yes again. Maybe it's like a pandemic here. Oh, okay, I'm back in the game following you, Jesus. Resetting that pattern. More than me.